But there's coming a day when you will have no choice if you don't know Jesus. Because everyone, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of Father. Some because they want to, some because they have to. And they'll do it right before they are forever removed from the presence of God into the place of eternal judgment. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Christ's Return to Earth. Over the last two days, we have seen that Christ's return to earth will come with increasing deception, great power, and today we will see that his return will also bring forth great mourning. Matthew chapter 24 verse 29 says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall away from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. He came the first time as a helpless babe, but he is coming back as a conquering king. Men abuse him, they mock him, they make fun of him, they use his name in vain. Not on this day. And there'll be no mercy on this day. The time will have expired. The mercy of God will have given over to his wrath. Notice how verse 12 begins. His eyes are a flame of fire. Perfect vision. It's an imagery that's already been used in Revelation chapter 1 and again in the second chapter. Nothing escapes his notice. He can't be fooled. He is incapable of doing anything but fair and righteous judgment. He will be able to see every deed, thought, and word that we have spoken that is wrong and evil. Nothing will escape his modus, mode, notice. No one will be able to escape and say, I didn't know. His eyes are a flame of fire, notice, and on his head are many diadems. Now again, when a Roman general would conquer the enemy, one of the things they would do, and if there were several kings involved, they'd literally stack them. They'd put the diadems on top of their head. You see King David doing this in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He, he conquers the Amorite king. What, is the, what do they do? They put the diadem on his head. Now, we'll study it next time. You don't want to miss it. But there's a battle that is going to end also at this time. And it's a battle where all the armies of the world come against Israel because they hate Israel. And Christ comes back as a sovereign king pictured here wearing the diadems of this world. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And he has a name written on him, notice, which no one knows except himself. A name that no one knows except himself. I have over 50 commentaries on the Revelation. In fact, I wrote my own commentary on the Revelation. I've never published it, but I have it written. I've got like 15 commentaries done. But I'm so sick to death of these Christian book companies and all their compromise and all they're interested in is making money and they'll compromise sound theology at the price of doing it. Lay that aside, what's interesting to me is all the commentaries that say what it is that's written on him. <laughs> the text says he has a name that no one knows except himself. Let's keep reading. By the way, this name 
We're, we've learned something about it already. If you were here earlier in the series, remember Christ when he's describing true, true believers in the church at Philadelphia? He says this, and I will write on him the name of my God, these believers, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God and my new name. Now he's looking into the future. So there's coming a day when you're going to know his name, but we don't know it right now. Okay. And so why is he going to write his name on you? You know, when I was a boy, sometimes, you know, eight children <laughs> and, you know, we, maybe mom and dad would buy something special, maybe a special bag of cookies and write your name on it. That, that's your bag. And when you eat it, they're gone and whatever, or, or you had some important item that was precious to you, you'd write your name on it. Well, you're precious to God and he is going to write his name on you because you are special he is clothed, notice, verse 13, with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, the blood on the robe is not the blood with which he redeemed us. The context is not redemption, but judgment. And again, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. I know that it's not the blood of his cross for the simple reason that there's another Messianic passage that you should write out in the margin. Isaiah 63, 2-4. Isaiah 63, 2 to 4. The language of Isaiah removes all doubt as to what this is describing. Let me read to you from Isaiah. It said, God asks, and it's a messianic passage. Jews believe this is a messianic passage to this day. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? I've trodden the wine uh, trough alone, and from the people there was no man with me. I also tried them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and stained all my raiment for the day of vengeance was in my heart. It's a, it's a picture of when Messiah comes again to rule and reign and set up his kingdom and his garments, so to speak, are covered with blood. And he uses the imagery here of a wine press. Here's a picture of a first century wine press in Israel. Uh, this is a large one, unlike the one that you might see in Nazareth. Uh, the grapes are put around that center hole, and you can see, if you look carefully, little troughs, because when the grapes are squished with your bare feet, the wine runs down those little channels and goes into that hole. And what happens if you're involved in the trotting of grapes? Well, you, you, you get this wine that looks like blood splattered all over your clothes. So you can see the imagery here. Verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And the text says, and his name is called the word of God. It's one of the familiar names that many of you know. There are many titles given of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, of course, we read as we celebrated Christmas, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is that the only begotten, full of grace and truth. He is the Word of God, and verse 14 says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. Now, a lot of people get confused at this point concerning Christ's return because they fail to recognize that, again, it comes in two phases, that we don't believe that Christ comes back twice, but there's a program where first he comes for the church. And so Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Not everyone's going to see physical death. 
But we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Now, the Greek word, a mystery, is mysterion. It was something that was once hidden, was revealed. And while you may see the rapture in the Old Testament one type, it was hidden. Now, the Jews recognized the doctrine of the resurrection. Jesus taught the doctrine of the resurrection from Moses. When the Sadducees, who were sad, you see, because they denied the doctrine of the bodily resurrection, and they come with this incredible example, Jesus reminds them that God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, Abraham, when he died, he wasn't extinguished. He's still very, very much alive. They believed in life beyond the grave. They believed in a future bodily resurrection. Job, who lives during the time of Abraham, speaks of the fact that his body would be raised. In Daniel 12, when the Old Testament saints are raised, at the end of the tribulation, their bodies are going to come out of the grave, either to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. But what God doesn't reveal in the Old Testament is that between these two mountain peaks of prophecy, he will build his church. It's a mystery, something hidden but now revealed. And you don't have to know Greek to figure that out. Just read some of the New Testament mysteries, like Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, Paul said, I want to tell you a mystery. God has removed the dividing wall between Jew and Greek, and he's made them into one people, the church. You see, the Jews believed Gentiles could be saved. What they didn't know was that they could be saved on the same level as a Jew could. And that's what Peter's blown away when he goes to Cornelius' house in Acts 10, and he comes back and reports to the saints in Jerusalem and said, hey, man, what happened to us on the day of Pentecost happened to them. They received the Spirit of God just like us. Wow, that was a mystery. It was not revealed in the Old Testament, now revealed. And so John, speaking of this mystery, echoes the same truth. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as of yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. One of these days, we will be like him. We'll never be as him. He alone is God, but we'll be like him and that we will have a glorified body like his. And so here are these armies. Now remember, the Old Testament saints haven't been resurrected yet. When are they resurrected? Daniel 12, the first two verses, at the end of the tribulation. So who are these people? These are church saints, which requires a pre-tribulational rapture, and we'll see more reasons before we're even done with this great portion of Scripture in the weeks to come. And so the armies, this is the church, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, we're following him on white horses. Now, it doesn't say the army, but it's plural, the armies, indicating there is more than one group. Who would be included in it? Well, angels of God, Jude tells us that. They're part of the army. The church saints and tribulation saints as well. And so they are riding with the Lord Jesus. Notice in fine linen, white and clean. And if you were here in our last session together, we saw that the white robes that God gives is used in two ways by John and the Revelation. One of imputed righteousness, the righteousness you're gifted that you must have if you're ever going to go to heaven, but also the righteous acts of the saints. And so we saw that before the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's a time of evaluation, and God gives us robes that picture the rewards that we have received. And so here's Jesus coming 
from heaven to earth, and he's not coming with a choir. He's coming with the armies of heaven, and he is going to bring judgment. It's an incredible event. It's not hidden. Every eye will see it, and Jesus will fulfill what he told them at Caesarea Philippi. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not come against it. Again, verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So here's the king. He's on a white stallion, and what are we doing? We're right behind him. <laughs> you say, I'm afraid to ride a horse. You won't be on this day. Don't worry. You'll be in a glorified body. All your fear will be gone every once in a while, typically a child, but not always, just animal lovers. They'll call on the Bible line, and they'll say, well, will there be animals in heaven? I said, well, of course. You know, we're coming back on horses. We know there's horses, and we know there are cats. That's, that's, that's. I'm not so sure about dogs, but we know, you know, we know there's cats. In fact, Revelation 22:15 said, outside are the dogs. <laughs> not really. I mean, it does say that, but it's not being used of literal dogs. Hey, look, if you're a cat lover, uh, I switched it around the last time. I made cats and their, you know, intestines as the uh, strings used for the harps in heaven, but I'm not going there today. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. What a picture. When I was single, I was driving from Massachusetts to Colorado in my 1972 Volkswagen, no air conditioning. I was in the middle of the country. I just had to pull over my car. I had never seen anything like it. These magnificent horses, these stallions, hundreds of them, just kind of wild stallions marching across the plain with dust and smoke and it was just a magnificent thing to see. Look, millions and millions of white horses are going to fill the skies as Jesus comes back victorious. Look at verse 15. It's rather chilling. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he, treats, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. This sharp sword, which we saw in Revelation 1 and verse 21, is a symbol of the Word of God. We'll come to this in our next time, and I'll explain it and let Scripture interpret Scripture. But just to give you a few verses, there's not a literal sword coming from his mouth, but the sword is the Word of God. You're told to take the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. And of course, this perfectly dovetails with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There Paul says when Jesus comes back on the exact same day, then that lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and will bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Further, Isaiah 11.4 describes this sword for us, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And so again, this symbol of the winepress picturing the wrath of God, it's a chilling scene, and by his word he brings judgment, and the massive armies of the world in a moment's time will be destroyed. Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, please understand that the Lord is not bearing his thigh. This is not the biblical basis for a tattoo, as so many are scrambling to find. Literally, the Greek text reads, and on his robe, even on his thigh, 
he has a name written. In other words, monogrammed on that portion of his robe that is over his thigh is his great title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You should put in the margin next to this verse, Deuteronomy 10, 17. Deuteronomy 10, 17. There Moses writes of God the Father. He says, for the Lord, Yahweh, Adonai, your God, Elohim, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. But here, both titles are given to Jesus. Malek HaMalekim, he is King of Kings, and he is Adonai HaAdonim, he is Lord of Lords. And so Jesus Christ, as a visible representation of the Holy Trinity, is coming as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords, and no one will debate his sovereignty or his deity on that day. Now go back to Matthew 24. It's about finish. Matthew chapter 24. In verse 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, even so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then he adds in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now this is an idiomatic expression, and depending on its context, it's used in different ways. And I don't want you to miss how Jesus uses this, what we might consider a bizarre proverb, but it's really not all that bizarre, especially as you read the rest of the chapter, which we're going to study later on with a number of other passages, because the battle of Armageddon is not exclusively a New Testament doctrine, it's found in the Old Testament as well. And so what do you do? You know, we had this snake that tried to break through our fence some time ago, about two years ago, and you know, it had a little knot hole in one of the slats, and the, 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 the snake went in, he got caught in the knot hole, and he died there. He, he, he got caught in the knot hole. It kind of surprised me. I thought, I, I would have thought he could have gotten out, but he didn't. My wife said, there, there's something dead. I think Charles, our grandson, found him, and, and there he was stuck in the knot hole. There was that stink. What happens when you get this stink? You get vultures. We had a dead raccoon in our yard. What did we have? I said, something's dead down there. I can smell it, and before long, the vultures came. It's like they have a sixth sense that God gave them. Now, people hate those buzzards, but they're God's garbage cans. He cleans, they clean things up for us all across the state of South Carolina. And when something's dead, down come those turkey vultures. What is he saying? We'll see it next time at the finish of the Armageddon. There's going to be so much death, so much blood, as all the armies of the world come against the Jewish people. Jesus, by the word of his mouth, is going to slay them. And there's going to be a bird feast like man has never, ever seen before. It comes with great deception, increasing deception. His coming comes with great power, and then it comes with great mourning. His return will come with great mourning. Everyone will know he's back, just like people know when there's something dead and vultures all around. They'll know he is here. It's not hidden. And when they see him, well, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the sun will give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Now, several prophetic passages describe various cosmic disturbances that happen at different times during the seven-year period. These are the 
catapult of all of those disturbances. He's quoting the prophet Joel, the second chapter. The sun is dark, and since the moon gets its light from the sun, that's darkened as well. And really, he's creating like you go into a jeweler, and they take out a black piece of felt, and they lay that little diamond on there. Why? Because it just makes it pop. God's going to turn the lights out, and Jesus is coming back. Every eye will see him. Everyone will know that he is here. It's going to be terrifying, verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, they're not mourning in repentance. No time left to repent. It's over. They're mourning in grief how wrong they were. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. He'll gather those who are believers, who have come to faith during this time frame, who have survived the tribulation, and he'll send his angels. He's going to bring them in their physical human bodies. We'll be there in our resurrection bodies to Jerusalem, to the valley of judgment that the prophet Joel speaks of. Somehow God will in his perfect justice then begin to separate the believers from the unbelievers. Now we've just cracked the door. Next time is critical to this sermon. Let me give you three applications in terms of questions that I want to leave you with. Number one, do I live with the expectation that Christ is coming back? Ask yourself that. Nothing needs to happen for the rapture to take place, all kinds of things for the second coming. But Jesus commanded us to occupy until he comes. And scripture plainly indicates that some Christians will shrink back in shame when he comes. Listen to these words. And now little children abide in him. So that when he appears, he's speaking to believers, little children. We may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, the Bible teaches that God will be ashamed of unbelievers. But believers who are alive when Jesus comes back, some will shrink back in shame. I don't want to shrink back in shame. I want to passionately serve him. Paul says we have as our ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to him. I mean, we've got every reason in the world to serve him and not to shrink back. When you look back at Calvary, all you can see is a cross by which you were purchased with precious, sinless blood. When you look within, the love of the Spirit of God has been poured out in your heart. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you've become a child of God. So when I look back, I see he died for me. When I look into the present and I look within, he indwells me. When I look around, I see brothers and sisters in Christ who love me. When I look ahead, I see my king coming back to whom I will give an account. And so knowing the fear of the Lord, among other reasons, we are to serve the Lord. Everyone who has this hope that he's coming again, as he'll say in the next verse, everyone who has this hope Fixed on him, a few verses later, purifies himself as he is pure. Secondly, do I live with the expectation that Christ is coming to judge? The return of Jesus to the earth is very different again from his first time. 
First time he came as a suffering servant. He's coming the next time as a warrior king. He is coming in righteousness to judge and to wage war. But unlike other conquerors who are full of ambition and pride and power, Christ is coming in righteousness. He's coming in perfect holiness to judge the world. Some people don't like this message. They say God is too good to judge anyone. He's too loving to send anyone to hell. My friend, he's too good not to judge. He is holy. He is righteous. Even on a human standard way, we don't like an unjust judge. But somehow we want God to overlook our sin. But your sin will not be overlooked. You will either receive the one who in your place took its punishment, or God will righteously, justly deal that punishment out upon you. Third, and finally, I would simply ask, do I live with the expectation that Christ is my king? God, God. John uses the same terminology that Paul does. Paul says in Philippians 2, a day is coming when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, or to use John's terms, king of kings. A day will come when the world will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, right now, God allows you to make that decision freely. But there's coming a day when you will have no choice if you don't know Jesus. Because everyone, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Some because they want to, some because they have to. And they'll do it right before they are forever removed from the presence of God into the place of eternal judgment. Now, God wants to show compassion to us, and he wants us to have compassion on a lost world. And when you see the lost people of this world, I hope you don't have some uppity-up, holier-than-thou attitude. I don't care whether it's our president and vice president and speaker who are so perverted, esteeming abortion and the mutilation of little children in the womb and even outside of the womb, wanting little boys to be castrated and little girls to have mastectomies. This is just perverted, upside-down, depraved thinking. But God would call you to have compassion on such people because but by the grace of God, there go I. Now, Holy Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture given for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I pray today for someone here who is unsure of their salvation. They want to go to heaven, but they don't really know for certain that if the trump of God were to sound, that you would catch them up into the air. But thank you, they don't have to wonder. Your word is clear that we cannot earn salvation, that it is the gift of God, eternal life. And Father, your word teaches, like with any gift, even in the human realm, it's earned by someone else. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, with your own blood, you paid for this gift of eternal life. That if we would come in faith, not by feeling, but by faith, believing the truthfulness of what you said, that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call on Jesus will be saved. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me. If you pray that, then pray this. 
I thank you for saving me on the basis of what Jesus did by his death and resurrection. Help me never to be ashamed of you and to spend the rest of my days serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 021. Remember that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.